today, we're going to be in Zechariah, uh, chapter 1, verses 7 to chapter 2, verse 13. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to that and follow along with us as we go through it? We are in a series in the Minor Prophets this summer. If you're visiting today, we've gone through Haggai, we're into Zechariah, and we're going to continue through Malachi over the course of the summer. And I'd like to uh, read part of this as we begin, chapter 1, verses 7 to the end of the chapter. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iru. During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine, and behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. And then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, we have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. And then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they added to the calamity. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further. This is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. I'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, thank you for it, that all scripture is inspired by you and it is profitable for our study, that you use it to teach, to train, to equip, to rebuke, to encourage or correct whatever we need. And Father, I pray that you would do that work in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to turn our thoughts a little bit as we begin with an opening illustration this morning to think about Christmas. And the reason this illustration came to mind for me is because of the passage that we're looking at this morning. All of us are familiar with Charles Dickens' story, The Christmas Carol. And if you've watched that, you know that Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by three spirits in one night. He has this friend who comes back to him, Jacob Marley, who tells him that uh, he has led a very kind of self-centered life, that Ebenezer Scrooge has become this cold-hearted man who is blind to the needs of the world around him. He doesn't care about family relationships. He doesn't care about the suffering of people around him, and he's really closed his heart to God. And Jacob Marley tells him that these spirits are going to visit him, and it is for his reclamation. They are coming with the hope that this man could have a changed life. 
And as you watch that, you see, you know, the different visits that he has during the night and how unsettling that is for him and yet leads to this good end, a changed heart and a changed life. Well, in chapters 1 to 6 of Zechariah, we come to a section of Scripture in which Zechariah has eight visions. And it appears that they all came in one night. Now, can you imagine that? I mean, you know, talk about your sleepless nights. Here you are, you're, you know, trying to get a good rest, and the Lord decides that tonight you need to hear from him in this way, and he has eight visions. And some of them are rather strange to our ears, you know, and, and we look at them, we wonder, what is this about? Uh, I'm going to talk about the first a few this morning, and then Pastor Jason's going to continue in this series and talk about the remaining five. And, you know, we've been talking this through, and Jason's been coming to me saying, what is this about? Why did you give me this text to preach on? <laughs> no, we've had a good time discussing it because there is a word from the Lord here. And on these eight visions, uh, we are given the date when Zechariah had this and spoke these words, the date is there in verse 7. It's the 24th day of the 11th month in the second year of Darius. Now, in our calendar, that would be February 15th, 519 B.C., specific date. That is exactly five months after the people who came back to Jerusalem committed themselves to work on the temple once again. They made this commitment, they saw their disobedience as sin, they confessed it, and they said, we will rebuild. And five months later, God comes, and he has this word for him and for all the people. They are called the night visions because of when they occurred. And they are given to Zechariah to encourage the people and fill them with hope because of what God is going to do in the future. It's God saying to them, because of your obedience, because you are committing yourself to this work, here's what I'm going to do. And these eight visions are written in a chiastic fashion. Now, that's a term that probably many of you have never heard before. Um, it comes from the Greek letter chi, which is shaped like an X. And it was a style of writing in the Old Testament. When they did things in a chiastic arrangement, it was for emphasis. And, you know, we think of it where you mark the X, X marks the spot. Well, the center of that X is the focal point. It's the most important thing being said. And so here are these eight visions, and vision one and vision eight have the same point to it. It is about how God is sovereign over the nations, and he's going to bracket this whole thing by saying God is in control of what's happening in our world. And then in visions two and three, he's going to talk about how God will punish Israel's enemies, and he will restore Israel and Jerusalem in the future. And then in uh, the fourth and fifth vision, which is at the center of this X, they are the most important part about it, and the focal point, he talks about the Messiah. And what this Messiah is going to do, that he will come and he will carry out both this priestly function, and he will also be the king, the king who is returning. And what you see in Zechariah that is so encouraging to me as I read through this book is you'll see Zechariah talk about both um, Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And you'll hear things about his first coming that you'll read and you'll go, I know that verse. I've heard that verse before. Because the New Testament writers quote Zechariah over 70 times. 
And there are specific things there that were fulfilled in Jesus' ministry the first time. And it is intended to give us confidence that if God did this exactly like he said the first time Jesus came, when it talks about his second coming, we can know he's going to do it just like he said. And all of this was future to them. For us, we live in that day when we've read and we know that Jesus has come that first time to deal with our sins, but we are still awaiting his second coming when he will establish his kingdom on earth. And Zechariah is going to talk about both of those things. And so in those sixth and seventh visions, what he talks about is this time when the Messiah comes and lawbreakers will be removed and sin will be purged from Israel. That when the king comes, he's going to make an end to sin and he's going to establish justice and righteousness in all the earth. What a glorious day that's going to be. And so here he writes these things to a people that are living as refugees. I mean, here's this group that have been in captivity in exile in Babylon for 70 years. They are demoralized, you know, they've been beaten down. They don't exist as a nation. And now God gives this order through Cyrus that you can return to your land and rebuild and 50,000 people come back. But they are small they are living among the rubbles. They don't have a walled city. They don't have nice houses or they don't have a temple yet or all of these things that were part of what would come. And God says, I want you to begin the work. And they committed themselves to it. And because of what they did, God says, this is what I'm going to do for you. So let's take a look at this vision it begins with this first one that i read for us about the man among the myrtle trees and what is this intended to show us it's intended to show us that god is sovereign over the nations so let's look at this what we see here is that during the night zachariah sees a secret rendezvous taking place and he sees this man on a red horse standing among the myrtle trees. Now, we don't need to get sidetracked by all of the details here when he says a man with a red horse. That's just, it could be a chestnut horse. It's just the normal color of a horse uh, that you might see. And he sees this man riding on this horse, and he is now standing there among the myrtle trees. Later in this text, we learn that he is the angel of the Lord. He is this messenger from God. But what we believe about the angel of the Lord is that that was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. That he was there in the book of Joshua, for example, when Joshua saw this man who had come was standing in the distance and he recognized him. This angel of the Lord was the commander of the Lord of hosts. He's the one who is identified in the New Testament as the king over all kings and the Lord over all lords. And he comes, and he is there. He's in this ravine. He's on his horse. He is there. And we learn that there are other horses and other riders, and what we see is that the other riders are angels who have gone on scouting missions to the ends of the earth. They are gathering information on the nations, and they come back and they report to their commander-in-chief. They are like the cavalry. And I think of the cavalry and how important that was during the Civil War 
If you watch the movies like Gettysburg or others, you learn that the cavalry were the eyes and ears of the army. I remember in Gettysburg when Lee was so frustrated because he did not know the size of the Union forces that were gathering against him or how many armies were coming together at Gettysburg because he hadn't heard from his cavalry. And at that time, in that day and age, if you did not have uh, troops that were out scouting on horseback, you were blind. You were blind. You just didn't know what was going on. And so here we have a picture that is like that of this secret military gathering among the myrtle trees where these angels are reporting to their commander-in-chief what is going on throughout the world. Myrtle trees are evergreen trees, small ones that grow to about 8 to 10 feet in Israel. They are found in the Kidron Valley, which is between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. They grow at the lowest point. And there, uh, you could picture in your mind that these men on horseback, these angels have gathered among the myrtle trees in the shadows. They are meeting, and they are talking about what has happened. And they report to their commander that the world is at peace. Now, normally, that would be a good thing. Normally, it would be a good thing to hear that the world is at peace. In very few years in the whole history of mankind has the world been at peace. I think I, I read that it's about 239 years out of over 5,000 years of recorded history that the world has been at peace. Normally, there is some kind of war going on somewhere. But this was not good news. Not good news here at all for Israel. You see, the transition from Babylon and their empire to Cyrus and the Persians had been relatively peaceful. The people living in Babylon were tired of their rulers that were tyrants. They were fed up with them and the oppression that they even experienced. And so when Cyrus came to power, they welcomed him. And Cyrus did this very good thing where he allowed nations to return to their homeland and rebuild. And he's the one who gave permission to Israel to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And he said, I'll even pay for it. Out of our treasury, you can go back and do this. But to the Jewish people, it seemed like the Babylonians were getting off easy. Here they had so ruthlessly destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, put people to death, carried them away into captivity. And the people of Israel were crying out to God, saying, God, where's the justice in this? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do they get away with the things that are going on in their life? And the Lord's answer to them was twofold. He spoke kind and comforting words to the angel, and he said, I am very zealous for Jerusalem and Zion. That I am the protector and defender of my people, and I am very zealous for them. And he also said that I am very angry with the nations that feel secure, the nations that had punished Israel. There is no doubt that God used those nations to bring his judgment upon Israel for their sin. He used the Assyrians to carry away the northern tribes of Israel. He used Babylon to carry out his judgment upon Judah for their wickedness and sin. But what had happened is that those nations had gone too far 
in their brutality and too long in their force and cruelty to God's people. And we see this. This is one of the things that stands out in the Old Testament is that God will judge nations for the way they wage their warfare. God will hold nations accountable for the way that they carry out and use their force. There is a just use of force and there is a use of force that is criminal, it is brutal, it is tyrannical, it is oppressive, it is unjust. And God sees that and that's what had been going on here and God says, I am very angry with those nations. And what he was saying to Israel by that is that you don't worry about that. I will take care of those things too. And what we see here were that God made some very remarkable promises to his people. He went on to say that I will return to Jerusalem with mercy and my house will be rebuilt. The measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. That was the first step in the work of a carpenter or a builder who's laying out his plan for the city just like you may have a builder stretch out his measuring line when he's laying the foundation for your house or your deck and he is there ready to build and God said I'm going to rebuild Jerusalem and not only that my towns will overflow with prosperity once again it is a remarkable promise to a people who are living among the rubble Small in number, weak, feeling like the lowest of the low. And here was the Lord fulfilling his promise, return to me and I will return to you. Wow. And I think about that with God and the way that he works in our life. And at the lowest point of our lives, God comes to us. And it is often those times when we feel so helpless that we turn to God and God shows up and he glorifies himself. You know, I think about that with, I think of Pastor Jason and Kim and just how we are all praying for them with Kim's battle with cancer right now. And I believe in God that God is going to show up big time in the midst of that. And he will give the grace and the strength and the healing that is needed at the lowest point of our life. Some of you, I know, are going through trials in your life, too, that are tough. And I believe that God is going to be there to give you the grace that you need. And he works in many different ways in our circumstances. He uses those afflictions in our life to help us grow in our faith. He uses them to bring honor and glory to himself. He does it through the way that he answers prayer or acts in our life. And others of you are, maybe you're at a point like Gail and I are in our prayer life here with our kids. We're praying for them as they are following God's leading in their life that he will provide for them or open the doors that they need or provide the resources that they need as they look to finish their education and find work and jobs and where are they going to settle in and all of those things. And we've told our kids a long time ago, we talked to them about how it's going to be a walk of faith. And each step along the way in your life, you're going to have to trust God and you will see him provide. And just like God did for us in our journey, he's going to provide for you. And we don't know how that's going to be, but you need to trust him. And that's exactly what they're doing. And these two points of God's judgment of the nations, his sovereignty over them, 
And the point about the Lord's love for his people and his compassion and his mercy on us are what are illustrated in the next two visions. So look with me, if you will, at verses 18 to 20, where we see the second vision. It is a vision of four horns and four craftsmen. Zechariah writes, Then I looked up, and there before me were four horns, and I asked the angel who was speaking to me, What are these? And he answered me, and he said, These are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I asked, What are these coming to do? And he answered, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one could raise his head, But the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. In this vision, Zechariah sees four horns. And horns represent power, military might. Sometimes the horn represents the king because the king was the center or focal point of that power and exercised that authority. Horns are used as this kind of symbol, just like animals used horns to attack another or to gore another animal or defeat them. So do kings and nations use their armies against one another. And the four horns here are very likely the nations that scattered Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem, such as Assyria, Egypt, Babylonia, Persia. But they also stand for any nation that attacks God's people, past, present, and future. They are there. There are nations that want to attack and destroy God's people. And what this passage teaches us, and especially then what we see in the New Testament, is that the same concern that God had for Israel, he has for his church today. He is still concerned about his people and what the nations do. Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you also do to me. The way that nations or people groups treat Christians is significant in the sight of God. And I look at the persecution going on today of Christians in many parts of the world, along with what we see with anti-Semitism against Israel, And I think of that passage in Revelation, chapter 6, verse 10, where the martyrs cry out, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And they cry out. And in Revelation, in that scene, John sees those martyrs, and he sees them beneath the altar of God. And they are waiting for justice, and they are calling out, Lord, how long? How long will it be until you bring justice on the earth? When we look at world history and we consider things even in the 20th century and going into our day today, and we consider what Hitler did in the Holocaust to the Jews or what Stalin did to Jews and Christians in the Soviet Union, the millions who died under these brutal, ruthless leaders. Or we think of what Idi Amin did in Uganda with the Christians, or what ISIS is doing today. Does God see? Yes, he does see. And does he hold nations accountable for their actions? Yes, he does. 
and he will bring justice upon those who persecute and abuse his people. The four craftsmen are the nations that God raises up to defeat his enemies. And we know from biblical history that God would use Babylon to punish the Assyrians, and then he would use the Medo-Persians to punish Babylon, and then he would use the Greeks who would come along and defeat the Persians, and so on, and so on, and so on, until ultimately, as Daniel saw in his vision, that one day the Messiah will come, and he will establish his kingdom upon the earth, his kingdom, and he will reign with justice and righteousness forever. And his kingdom will fill the whole earth. That day is still future to us. That's the day we are still waiting for when we look for Christ to return and we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. God has the power to tear down and he has the power to rebuild. And all of these things go back to God's promise to Abram in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. When he said to Abram at that time, when Abram was just this, this man who he's calling out of Babylon, he's calling out of that region of the world to come and follow him to the promised land. And he says to him, Abram, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Because through that line of Abraham, the Messiah would come. But that promise of making him into a great nation and later of saying that his descendants would be more than the stars in the heaven or the sand on the seashore, God is still at work and he is still carrying that out. And he still cares about his people in this world and he still has a place for Israel. You know, I think in history in 1948, when the Jewish refugees returned to their homeland in Palestine to create a new state, a new nation, and Israel became a nation once again in that land, it was a miracle. No other people group had ever been scattered and displaced throughout the world and scattered like they had and then existed to return to their homeland after nearly 2,000 years. And at that time, after they declared themselves an independent nation once again, President Harry S. Truman and the United States of America were the first to recognize their sovereignty and acknowledge that and acknowledge their right to be an independent nation. Evangelicals have long been supporters of Israel because of the way that we read and understand the scripture, that God has a place for Israel in the future and that God will graft them in again, as Paul says in Romans 9 to 11, that that day is coming when they will see the Messiah return and that there will be that revival even among them where they will turn and recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Now, our support of Israel doesn't mean that we approve of everything that they do, just like we may not approve of everything our government does. But we do believe that one day, Jesus is going to return to Zion, and he will establish his kingdom on earth, and Jerusalem will be his capital. 
And thirdly, what we see in the third vision here is an example of how God watches over his people. Let me read for us verses 1 to 13. In chapter 2, verse 1, Zechariah said, Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I asked, Where are you going? And he answered me to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. And then the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run and tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls. We think that young man was Zechariah. He was a young man when he was having these visions, probably in his early 20s or so. And so this angel is going and telling him that Jerusalem is going to be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, O Zion, escape you who live in the daughter of Babylon. For this is what the Lord Almighty says, after he has honored me and has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye, I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. And then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. And I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and he will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. What an awesome passage this is. Zechariah, in his third vision, sees a man with a measuring line. He is measuring Jerusalem to see how wide and how long it is. And then the angel tells him that Jerusalem is going to be a city without walls. Now that would have been a shocking statement. A city Without walls? I mean, that was unheard of for a major city. Every major city had walls to defend itself. How would you protect yourself if you didn't have walls? The Lord says, I will be that wall of fire around Jerusalem. It's taking them back to what happened in the Exodus when God would lead the children of Israel in the wilderness by that pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day that went ahead of them. He would be their defender, their protector. And not only that, he said, I will be your glory within. Just like the glory of the Lord came down and filled the tabernacle or filled the temple, God is saying, I will dwell there. And my glory will be your glory. Well, that's awesome. I mean, this is incredible what he is saying here. And then there's more. God gives this invitation to his people and he calls them to come, O Zion. You who live in Babylon, come, come back to me. And we know Babylon is a symbol for the world, for all that is opposed to God. It's just, you know, for the the world in which we were born that follows its own will, own desires, own lusts, own passions in opposition to God. And God is saying, come out from them. Come from the ends of the earth. Come to me. 
And he tells us that whoever touches you, whoever touches my people, touches the apple of my eye. The apple of the eye is an interesting phrase in Hebrew. The word apple literally means pupil, the most sensitive part of the eye. It's like whoever touches you is touching the most sensitive part of my eye. You ever have somebody do that? I I was thinking how when, uh, you know, I had one time when I was college and wrestling, goofing around with some of my friends, and one of them accidentally hit me in the eye, and I just smacked him. I mean, it was just one of those instinctive reactions that if somebody touches a sensitive part of your eye, you just whap them. And uh, that's what I did, and he's like, man, what's going on? You know, and it was just an instinctive reaction. And what is happening here is God says, whoever touches you touches the most sensitive part of me. And I will raise my hand against Babylon. Judgment is going to come. When the Lord raises his hands, be afraid. When he raises his hand to punish, it's the end of those nations. And he said, then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. And he calls to the people of God and he says, shout and be glad, daughter of Zion. Rejoice and be glad. Your redemption is coming. Your king is coming to you. And in those days, many nations will come to you. This is not just for the Jewish people alone. This is not just for Israel. But the Gentiles will come and be gathered to you as well. All the people of God from the ends of the earth. And Jerusalem is going to be a city without walls because there's going to be so many people there that it's going to fill that land. It's going to fill that area. And the Lord will be our defender and the Lord will be our glory within. And finally, he says, be still before the Lord. Be still before him and bow in reverence. Watch and see what God is going to do. That's the amazing thing about this to me. All of this was conditioned upon the people of God returning to the Lord. Return to me, and I will return to you. But all of these things that he's talking about doing, it's not you and me that need to fight these armies or these battles. What he is saying is that this is what I will do in that day. Our part is to be faithful. Our part is to follow God in obedience. Our part is to be witnesses in this world to tell others about Jesus. But it's God who is going to establish his kingdom on the earth, and he will do it in his time. And that is just a wonderful, amazing promise that's intended to give them hope and us hope as well. And the invitation is still there to all the earth. Come out of Babylon and be saved. Come out of Babylon. Return to the Lord. Come into a relationship with me and be joined with the people of God. The Lord is calling. And we're living in this exciting time in history when he is doing that, when the gospel is running to the ends of the earth, when more and more people are coming to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. You know, we rejoice over what happened this week with a children's ministry and vacation Bible school and all of these kids who came to Christ this week. We've seen it through the jail ministry, through our student ministry, or through you as adults who are witnessing. We're seeing it all around our world. I think of a story that was written to J.D. Payne. He's a pastor, and he wrote a book called Strangers Next Door, and he was talking about how God is bringing the world to North America and the United States and how all these different immigrant groups are coming here. 
And so he and his wife moved into the city and they were going to uh, pastor, he was going to pastor an English-speaking Chinese congregation. And so as they moved into the city and they're living in this apartment, his wife needed to find a hair salon, you know, for her. And so she goes to this place and, and she finds a, a hairdresser there who's a Filipino woman. She begins to talk to her as she's taking care of her hair and she finds out that this woman is a vibrant Christian. And it's really cool as they begin to share their stories. And then, you know, a couple months pass, the next time she goes to get her hair done, you know, she ends up not with this Filipino woman, but now she's with a Chinese woman who's working in this place. And so she begins to turn the conversation to talk about Jesus, and the Chinese woman expressed, um, you know, that she was a Christian too, that she had come to know faith. And the woman asked her, well, how did that happen? And she pointed at her Filipino boss who led her to the Lord. And so Mrs. Payne goes, you know, well, my husband is pastoring an English-speaking Chinese congregation. Would you like to join us? And then several months pass, and she goes back again to the same place, and she's there, and this time it's another hairdresser, and she noticed that this beautiful woman was Somalian. And she recognized her features. And she, knowing that most Somalians are Muslims, she began to talk with her, share with her a little bit. And the Somalian woman said, don't worry, I believe in Jesus too. And when she asked her how did that happen for her, she pointed to her Chinese colleague who had led her to Christ. And I think, how wonderful is that? A Filipino woman who leads a Chinese woman, who leads a Somalian woman to the Lord over the course of several months as they begin to build those relationships. God is at work. And maybe moving right in next door to you or where you work, you have contact with people that are from other parts of the world that have come here to America. God is at work. And this is a day and a time when he is bringing the nations into a relationship with himself. What do I take away from a passage like this? Well, I am impressed with this, that the God who watched over a small group of refugees in 519 B.C. is the same God who watches over you and me. He's the same God. He is faithful. He is powerful. He is awesome. He has a plan for history and a plan for the nations, and one day his son is going to come again. And we can also learn from this passage that whatever challenges that you or I may be facing, God is greater still. It's the same message that was shared this week at Vacation Bible School about Everest and about God's mighty power that can help us to overcome any challenge we may face. He is the Lord Almighty. He is sovereign over the nations, and he is loving and merciful to all who call upon him in faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these visions that point us to you and tell us of your power and your compassion. And God, I pray that we would each day rely upon your grace, that we would walk with you in faithfulness, and that we would see you at work in our life, in our church, in our world. And God, we're looking forward to the day when Jesus is going to return in all of his glory, and all the nations will see him. Help us, Lord, to both live in light of that day and to be ready for your coming. Amen.